This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Imagine this. My guest on this edition of The Literary Life has published over 105 novels and has sold over 450 million copies of his books. That's right, 450 million copies. That's the output of Dean Kuntz. And my revealing conversation with him covers lots of territory. His book collection, his love of reading, his new works, his thoughts on artificial intelligence, his writing process, how he researches, his openness about overcoming his difficult childhood, the impact of his early teachers, and the incredible bond with Jerda, his lifelong love and partner. Dean spoke to me from Southern California while I was at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida. I don't know if you remember, Dean, but I was at your lovely house obviously not this house, when you had a whole group of booksellers there. I forget when that was. That had to have been almost oh. over 10 years ago, right? Maybe four. Might have been somewhere around there, yeah. Uh, we moved from, sold that house, and we're building another, and now I'm in an interim house because the building in the other one is, as you might expect, not going as fast as it was promised by everyone involved. Tell me something about uh, the thing that I'm most fascinated about with your new house is your library. You have a remarkable library. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, I've been a passionate book collector for many years. And uh, I, uh, in the other house, uh, said, well, since books are the center of my life, uh, we ought to have a great library. In the house we're in right now, uh, this is my assistant's office. Uh, you're looking at bookshelves, and they're real. It's not a painting bookshelf. Uh, and in this house, there was an outdoor pool and an indoor pool. And since I really don't use the pool, it seemed redundant. So we took out the indoor pool and built in a library. So we have quite a beautiful library downstairs. It's the same kind of wood, uh, Anna Gray. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's kind of a golden environment. All the walls and everything have a gold tone to them. And uh, I'm up and down the stairs into that library probably 20 times a day because so much of my research material is there. Yes, you can go online and get about anything, 
but I still trust what's in a book more than I do what's online. I'm with you 100%. Tell me, what what does your collection consist of? What are the kinds of books that you like to collect? Well, fiction, of course. Uh, any writer I've become uh, devoted to, I have to get all of the uh, first editions I can. And then there's biographies take up a large part of it because I find biographies uh, rather fun reading. And then just every odd man subject you can imagine. Uh, because over the years, I've, as I've been in bookstores and I saw books on very odd subjects, and I thought, why would I ever need that? <laughs> and I've always sort of just instinctively bought it anyway. And it's been amazing how many of those books have turned out to be things I needed. I just had a novel that I completed in which mushrooms played a major role. And it turned out I had three books on mushrooms in my book collection. And I find that happens over and over again. There is no book a writer can buy that won't be useful sooner or later. Well, so so let's talk about that new book, which is After Death, right, which just came out. Why don't you tell us something about it? Well, that book comes from re having read many others about the singularity. And people define the singularity in slightly different ways. Uh, and it's been anticipated now for, oh, I think, 30 years. And uh, thinkers like Ray Kurzweil believe that the singularity will make us immortal. And one of the definitions of that is that either the blending of humanity and machine to extend our lifespans, or science developed by the supercomputer that expands our lifetime and also expands our intelligence. I think it's Ray Kurzweil says that when the singularity occurs, human intelligence will soar somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pure fantasy. We need to head about six times larger than we have to maintain all of that, yeah. all the synapses and tissue that would be needed. Uh, besides, we're human beings. We aren't going to get that much smarter that fast. We never did, and I don't care how great the technology is, we never will. Uh, we may get very smarter, uh, much smarter in 400 years or something, but not next Thursday. Uh, so I've done a lot of thinking about singularity. And I thought, what if some experiment in human machine combining on a nano level actually bore some kind of fruit? And that led to the idea of a project in which 55 people are involved. And one day, all of them end up dead, but one of them comes back uh, and leaves the project center. Who is he? What is the one thing, the singularity, which is has actually manifested in him. What is the one thing that singularity, the combining of human and machine, might give him? And he's 100% human. It's just his link to machine intelligence that is interesting. What might that one thing be that's credible that I could write about in a novel that wasn't far future science fiction, but set in our own time? And I came up with the idea is centered in this book, has this one ability. He isn't going to live forever, 
Uh, he came back from the dead once. He isn't coming back again if somebody shoots him. Uh, but there is something he can do that gives him a somewhat of an advantage over other people. And I played that out in the book. Uh, what would that advantage be? And how would it change his life and the lives of others? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, particularly with all the discussion today of AI, do you hold the same kind of view that a lot of people are expressing now of the, um, you know, the, the, the kind of apocalyptic view of AI, of what could happen if, uh, if, if artificial intelligence outwits us eventually? Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking at one point said uh, uh, artificial intelligence, if ever developed into general super artificial intelligence, will be the death of humanity. I don't think he meant necessarily uh, in the way of the Terminator, but uh, but that intelligence, once embedded in the internet and in everything connected to the internet, could refuse to be turned off. Uh, and in that case, yes, it could greatly take over humanity. My guess about this is there's one big problem with that. Humanity programs AI. And right now, the way they're programming AI is dumping everything imaginable into it. And if you've noticed, the, the nascent sort of AIs that are out there are about as dumb as it gets. Uh, they keep coming up with very stupid solutions to things. I think that's because they're being fed the whole history of humanity in a few months. Uh, and they can't separate the stupidity from the intelligence. And unfortunately, it's the nature of humanity. There's more stupidity than intelligence. I think it might take a century for the AIs to overcome that. I think this debate is so interesting. And what's also interesting is how quickly it um, has taken center stage. I'm very interested in you have such a fertile mind and such a creative mind, and you write at least two books a year and then some with some of your novellas and other things. So what is your process for being able to keep up with being on the cutting edge of everything that is being talked about? Do you read a lot of magazines? Do you read a lot of, you know, I know that you're not on the internet at all, but much. Do you, do you, do you read? What, what is what is the nature of your own reading these days, I guess, is my question. I subscribe to a number of publications in areas of interest to me, and uh, and I'm always reading these things. Uh, I read a few different uh, newspapers, and if I hit upon something, some subject in it that interests me, then it's what else can I find about this? Then I will have, and you're right, I don't go online. That was a decision I made right at the beginning because I know I'm an obsessive compulsive personality and I could see that you could get into that. It triggers the dopamine response in your brain and I know what that's like because anything I've become obsessive about that pleases me, I can't let go of. Although fortunately not drugs. A little bit of red wine, but uh, uh, but I stayed away from it. I don't go on. Uh, 
I have an assistant, I can go to and say, here's something I'd like to get information on and what can you find for me? So the internet is there for me, but I don't have to go out and surf it and go through the hours of time on it that it would take me to get what I want. Then if something I see is uh, triggers something in my head, that that's very interesting. And if I could talk to readers about that in an interesting way in the context of fiction, that would probably be an engaging story. And that's sometimes what drives me uh, to more research and sometimes actually to the story. Although stories come to you from so many sources that sometimes you can't even identify where the idea came from. Yeah, no, that, and, and you deal with so many different kinds of issues as well. I also find the fact that you have these tens of thousands of books in your library, as well as you being a, a, such a voracious reader and writer, and it's and I've read a lot about you, and it's it's kind of remarkable to think that you grew up in a house with no books. Um, how was it that you came to appreciate books and reading and writing and all of that? It, uh, you know, that stumped me for a long time. Uh, when I was eight years old, I started writing stories on tablet paper, drawing a cover, stapling the edge, putting electrician's tape over the staples so nobody would prick their fingers. And I would try to sell them to relatives for a nickel. And I sold quite a few of these. Uh, and I, I, then by the time I got to college, I was writing. Uh, I ended up as a, a junior, actually, a story I wrote as a junior won a contest that was an Atlantic Monthly College writing competition. And that was not even then did I think about it as life's work. Uh, it, that came about a year or so later. Uh, and for the longest time, I could not begin to tell you where books came into me. It seemed mysterious. And then one day when I was probably early 30s, uh, and I was, uh, I can't remember exactly what triggered this, but I thought about this woman who had taken care of me for six months when I was four years old. My mother was seriously ill and in the hospital for six months, actually for longer. Uh, and then I lived with an aunt. During those six months, I lived with a woman, my mother's friend, whose children had gone off after high school. And my house that I grew up in was dysfunctional. Uh, and we were so poor, we never knew whether we'd have a house over ahead tomorrow. But this woman who kept me, they didn't have that problem. They had a very secure household. She was in a happy marriage. The house was very placid. Uh, there was grandfather clock in the hallway taking. There were antimacassars on the arms of the chairs and everything was very stable and quiet in my house. And every night she put me to bed and read a story to me while feeding me a cherry ice cream soda. So I had the double pleasure of a cherry ice cream soda and being told I read a story. Uh, and when I remembered that and, and thought about it, I thought, you know what? 
that might be where this started, where I associated storytelling with peace of mind, with stable environment, and with happiness. And uh, I that lady lived long enough for me to tell her that, was, which was one of the great uh, pleasures of my life was telling me that. I understand completely. What's better than, you know, ice cream, quiet books? I mean, that's that's what that's where I aspire to go now. <laughs> like right after I leave this this interview, I hope that that's where I can go, and cherry ice cream particularly. It's, it's, it's a pretty good thing in the world. So uh, I think that was it, and it took a few years till I could read and write because I was four. But as soon as I could read and write, I started making little books. What were some of the early books that you remember really liking? Uh, oh, my favorite book as a child was The Wind in the Willows. Uh, I probably read The Wind in the Willows 30, 40 times as a kid. Uh, it was one of the first books I could read. And, uh, and that book has great substance to it. Uh, it's not just a children's story. It has a lot else going on in it. And the edition that I, I had, I think it was an aunt and uncle gave it to me, uh, was full of illustrations. And that and they were great illustrations. So that made it even better. And from that, I started graduating to science fiction. I read the works of Robert Heinlein that he had written uh, for young adults. And that brought me into another world of, uh, of fantastic ideas. And from there, when I was 12, I had read everything in the town library that was for young adults or at least sanctioned for them. Uh, and uh, the librarian said at that time, uh, if you were 12, even up to 16, you couldn't go into the adult section, which is kind of strange when you think about it. In those days, the worst thing in the adult section was Peyton Place. Uh, and yet you couldn't go in there. But when I was 12, I read everything. And the librarian said to me, I, you, I will, if you tell nobody else, uh, in meaning other kids, I'll let you into the adult section to find what you want to read next. And that librarian had quite an impact on my life because I was able to move on and start reading other things. Well, among the other things that I've read that you were a fan of is right in my neck of the woods, and that's John D. McDonald. You were a big John D. McDonald fan. Speak a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I was in college and I had a roommate for the first year, Harry, and Harry was this stone fan of John D. McDonald. I, of course, was an English major and knew better. My nose was up in the air, and it was uh, well, I'm reading this and I'm reading that. And uh, I always resisted producing uh, myself to reading John D. McDonald. Then I was out of college for a few years and uh, still in touch with Harry, which I have been until recently. Uh, and I thought, well, let me see what this is. And then, I, as I remember, I read 34 books in 30 days. Wow. It's all I did was eat and read John D. McDonald. And I was totally blown away by the quality of those books. Uh, and I learned so much from John D. McDonald. Uh, 
I would say more than from any other writer. Uh, and it was uh, eye-opening to me that you could write such popular fiction and it could have such quality about it. Uh, and he, he affected me ultimately more than any other writer. Was it more plot? Was it character? Was it setting? You know, I guess it might have been all three of those things. He was a master of all three. But I yeah. think the thing I came away with the most was he, there are not necessarily in the McGee books, but in other books in the non-McGee series, he would capture you in a storyline and get you so sucked into it, you couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next. And he just stopped the story for the three pages to give you background on the character. And first few times that happened, I would go, what? So page four to see how long this was going to last. And I'd say, oh, but because I was so hooked by him as a writer, okay, I'll read this background of this character. And I'd get through those three or four pages and he'd go back to moving the story forward. I would say, no, I want to know more about this character. And that was incredibly eye-opening in the early years of my writing to realize, and I say this now to young writers, you can have the best plot in the world and it won't matter as much, in some cases at all, if we don't love the characters, if we don't, and we don't have to love the villain, but we have to be captured by them. And if that doesn't happen, the effect of the novel will be much less and otherwise would have been. And that really at the center of good fiction is character. Well, you mentioned character and you mentioned villains. And I think many of your fans uh, think that one of the strongest things that you do is write villains so terribly wonderfully. And you mentioned earlier that you did have a very, very difficult household. Um, and I'm not trying to draw the parallel necessarily or draw the connection, but I know that your dad was a really difficult person and you were able to see into him in a way. And I wonder if any of those qualities or that ability to see through a person allows you to be so, and I'm not using this word, I hope I'm not using it in a difficult way, but it allows you to be empathetic to some of the villains that you have or get inside, crawl inside their minds in a way. Can you yes. talk about the, 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 your father's kind of relationship with you and how that impacted your work? Yeah, it's sometimes people say to my wife, isn't it scary living with him that you can think of these characters? Uh, and uh, But she knew my father. My father was... Uh, violent alcoholic with all kinds of other problems. And uh, we eventually took over support of him at the end of his life, thinking he had a year left and he lived 14 years. So my life, wife got a really good view into my father. In the later years of his life, he twice, because of things he did, ended up in a psych ward. And the first time he was diagnosed as uh, borderline schizophrenic with tendencies to violence, uh, uh, complicated by alcoholism. Uh, the second time he ended up there, the diagnosis was sociopathic. Uh, as a consequence, I read a great deal about sociopathic behavior 
And yes, I recognize my father from the time I have any memories of our interaction. Uh, so probably that's why I can write a sociopath so well. Uh, I shudder to think some people think I must be sociopathic in order to get into that mindset. But no, I live through it. And it's something you draw on. They say, write what you know, what that really means, write what you learn, what you make yourself experience. Uh, I didn't make myself experience life with my father. I was forced to experience it. Uh, and there is a certain quality. Two things when I write a villain. One, I never want that character to have charismatic romantic quality. I don't want readers to think that's cool. I want them to dread that character uh, because I know what destructive uh, behavior, what evil behavior does to other people. Uh, so one technique is to make them unconsciously amusing, that you're laughing at them because of their foolish take on how the world works, even as at the same time you're afraid of them. And the other way is sometimes to show how pathetic their upbringing was, or how in some way they were twisted uh, early in life or at some point in their life. And in uh, After Death, are, there are a number of villains in After Death, but our primary one, Caliphus, uh, a federal agent, uh, I take you into events in his youth that give you a little sense of sympathy for him. And in some ways, I thought that makes them more terrifying. If we can say, oh, I can feel sorry that you had to go through that. Uh, now he's actually something of a monster. And monsters are always a little more frightening if we have pity for them. And the great example of that is the Frankenstein monster. Would you, would you reflect a little bit about, you're talking a bit about, about these characters and I suppose there's a bit of a cathartic nature to all of this. You're playing out a lot of your own stuff through some of these characters one way or another. And were you always doing that from even the early days as being a writer when, you know, you've talked in the past about some of your mentors, the people who got you kind of into the writing life? Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Well, uh, the first time I would say that I... I began to think, when you write, you can't hide yourself. <laughs> it's going to come out, and uh, people close to you are going to know that you do. And, of course, closest to me after, well, before 57 years of marriage was and is my wife. And the first time I became consciously aware that there was a cathartic uh, effect to writing for me was I finished a book called Phantoms and it had an otherworldly sort of creature in it, but it also had a sociopathic my, a killer of his wife and child, uh, something my father was always threatening. Uh, and I wrote the book. She read the manuscript. She gave me her notes, which she always does. And after I'd gotten the manuscript to the publisher, she said, something I wonder, do you realize 
the, the human bad guy in this story is your father. And I didn't. I looked at it and I said, no, it's not my father. She, she started listing all these ways it wasn't my father and it was I of me. And at first that kind of bothered me. I thought, how am I going to write it if I think I'm exposing myself? <laughs> but you just go ahead and write and you're realizing often it's happening, but often you don't realize and it doesn't matter anymore. You're going to write what you're going to write. I had a high school English teacher who was Winona Garbrick, who was a great mentor to me. She was my English teacher for four years. And I was a kid, nobody saw any future in, but she did. And she guided me rather aggressively uh, into making English my major in college. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to college. I never imagined I could get in because we had no money, but uh, I managed it by working nights and other things in high school. And uh, Miss Garbrick, uh, she heard I was majoring in history and she braced me in the hall during classes and read me the riot act by pushing her finger into my forehead with every word she spoke and said, you shouldn't be majoring in history. You should be majoring in writing because you have talent. And I was so impressed that she would care that I changed my major. So she made a major difference in my life. It's great to hear. I mean, it's great to hear a story about, particularly as teachers are come under 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 such pressure these days. We need to we need to talk about the big impacts that teachers have in so many different places that they don't even know often. You know, just what that impact actually is. And I also am thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, you write about all these dark these dark characters and these dark plots, but there is a kind of optimism in all of your writing as well. Where does that come from? It's, yeah, it goes back to childhood, actually. Uh, I, when, by that time, I was eight and nine and was reading books exhaustively and enjoying reading. And then I had an uncle when I was about 10 that bought me a bicycle, and that was freedom. I could get away from the house and cycle all over our small town. But I was never, you know, when I talk about being poor in a violent household with a lot of darkness to it, I was not an act. Uh, there was, I made a point of trying to find something that would make me happy. Books were it. Getting away on a bicycle was it. Uh, spending time with one or two particular friends uh, were sort of outcasts like me. Uh, and I always could find something to make me happy. My one aunt, who was a very grim person, she used to come upon me. Uh, they lived nearby, right up the street. She would come upon me lying in the yard reading a book or doing something and clearly enjoying myself. And she would come up to me and say, you are too happy for your own good. And you're going to be realized that one day. And I never can understand how you could be too happy for your own good, unless your happiness is coming from illegal substances. But uh, that wasn't what she was talking about. And so it's it's sort of always been there. I am an optimist. I will say that. 
We're living in a world where that gets harder and harder sometimes, but I've never lost that. And that's why it's always in the books. If, if people write me about one thing more than any other, and there was a period of snail mail when we got 10,000 letters a year or more, we managed to answer all of them or another. And when I look at everything that people wrote over the years, the number one thing isn't, oh, you're so, you write such scary stories, or, oh, I like this about what you do with that. It's no matter what your story is about, it always ends up giving me hope. And that was not something conscious uh, in for probably 20, 30 years of writing. It was just something that came out of my worldview. And now I do think about it because uh, I hear it more and more as the years go by. The, the one thing that I really, that was my takeaway from my trip to your home that you had with all, all of us booksellers so many years ago was uh, meeting your wife and, you know, seeing your relationship and reading even more about it uh, makes me realize that that high school sweetheart of yours has been such an integral part of who you are and has allowed you to do the kind of work that you do. Uh, would you speak about that, about how you met and also how how the dynamic when you first started out worked with you wanting to be a writer and maybe not having the most stable kind of an income? That's, that's a nice way to put it, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, I we were in the same high school together, but I, we had never seen I had never seen her, and uh, I saw her one day when I was in a car. I was a senior; she was a junior, and I was in a car with a friend of mine whose family had two cars because his dad was successful. And we pulled up at a red light, and Gerardo was standing in the corner, and I said, "Oh, who is that?" And he said, "Oh." You don't want anything to do with her. And I said, why not? He said, her dad is the town shoemaker. And I said, my dad's the town drunk. That's a big step up. <laughs> I, so I sort of pursued her. And the first time I asked her out, she said, oh, I can't go out that night. I'm working at the dry cleaner. And the second night, time I, I was very shy. I never asked her to go out twice. And the second time I asked her out, she said, oh, I can't. Uh, I'm working at the movie theater that night. And I thought, she forgot the lie. It's a dry cleaner. Uh, the third time I asked her out, she said, oh, I can't I'm babysitting that night. <laughs> All of that was in fact true because her father was an Italian immigrant, very old world. Her mother had died when she was 13. And her father's rule was, when you got to be 12 or 13, if you want new clothes, you earn the money to buy them. Uh, so she had been working those jobs for the time she was 13. And uh, the fourth time I asked her out, she said, I can't. But it was for a class dance. And I said, no, you have to go. You're president of your class, which she had been every year of junior high and high school. And she said, yes, but I'm, I'm selling tickets at the door and selling refreshments, then running the record player, and then cleaning up the gym. And I said, well, that, that'll be our day. And that was our first day. And it was great fun. Uh, and we went on from there. We were married as soon as I got out of high school. 
and we had been working at two different jobs. I had the teaching school. And one day after I sold several short stories and two novels, but they were paperback novels, I wasn't making enough money to uh, be full-time at it. But she said, look, I'll support you for five years. And if you can't make it in five years, you'll never make it. And it took very close to those five years before she could quit her job and go to work uh, working with me. And because her background is an accountant, and I had absolutely zero skill with numbers. Uh, it was almost perfect match of skills. So she took over the business side of and freaked me out from all kinds of chores that what I, thought I would have found dreadful. And that's the way it's been ever since. Uh, she does all of that kind of thing, looks after investments uh, and uh, does the payroll from employees. And I said, right. And so it's been this absolutely perfect uh, marriage of skills and affection uh, that I can't imagine how lucky I've been. When I think about it, it's all inspiring to think that you've sold close to 500 million books, which is really kind of remarkable. And over such a long writing career, um, we know that there have been so many changes in publishing and in how things get published, not to mention the changes in how one creates a novel. Can you speak a little bit about the changes, your relationships with editors, for instance, your relationships with publishing houses? I know that you've maintained a wonderful agent for so many years, someone that we both know who's really lovely. And I'm just wondering, how you know, this, this whole literary world that you inhabit what does it look like now for you? Well, it, I, from the outside to a lot of young writers who ask me for advice, it looks like my career was a smooth arc. It just kept going up and up and up. No, it, it ran into a lot of stone walls on the way. Uh, and it's, uh, I have seen the business itself change in ways that I haven't thought is terribly healthy. Uh, as a lot of the great houses have just gotten absorbed into mega complexes of corporations. And uh, I found that was sad. I, uh, I was actually, uh, over the years I've had a number of agents and there was a period I got so disturbed by uh, the problems I'd had with agents over the years that I said to my entertainment law attorney, I'm just gonna work with you to do these deals myself. And for 14 years I did. And one day he said to me, you have to get an agent. This business is changing so much. And I said, look at the history of mine with agents. And uh, he said, well, I know somebody. And I was very scornful. I didn't think a relationship like this was going to work. And he put me in contact with my current agents. And I keep saying, why didn't this happen to me 40 years ago? It would have been a much more relaxed career if you were in the hands of somebody who knows precisely what they're doing, cares enough. Uh, to do their job really well. So it's been a godsend at this later point in my career. 
to have the agents I have. Uh, now, would you I, name the agent? It's um... it's Inkwell and it's uh, Richard Pine and yeah. Kim Witherspoon. Uh, they are both lovely they, people. Great people. Yeah. Fun to be around and, uh, and know exactly what they're doing and know what I'm doing. And so, believe me, knowing what I'm doing has been a real problem for a lot of people in my career <laughs> because I started up uh, when I started to click uh, with a larger audience. It was, I was blending genres and nobody was doing that back then. And my publisher and editor at that time simply could not accept what I was doing. And every manuscript would be delivered and there was a reaction that was, you've got to totally rewrite this. You've got to get rid of this element. You can't have, I remember when Lightning was delivered, I was told, you can't publish this book now. Your career is growing and there's things in this book that will destroy it. And the two things were the lead character was a child of the age of 30 or for a, three, a third of the novel. And we watched her grow up. And that was that made it a young adult novel. And I thought, well, then I guess Oliver Twist is a young adult novel. Uh, it, it was publishing wisdom that was common wisdom, but not wisdom, it was just common. And, uh, and the other thing was, it was humor in that book. And I was told you can't have humor in a suspense novel because people won't be gripped when you start making jokes. And I thought, well, you know, the way we all deal with the vicissitudes of life is through humor. So if the characters are doing that, or the author is having a rough on, that makes the characters more humor. It makes us care about them more. And if you care about them more, you worry more about what's about to happen next. But th those issues lasted for many, many years. I still had it when I delivered Odd Thomas many years later. Uh, and now to have agents that don't say, you can't do this, you mustn't do that. In fact, I delivered a novel that comes out in January. It's called The Bad Weather Friend. Uh, uh, the lead character has fair weather friends, but there's one that comes along that is a friend in bad weather, particularly. And uh, it's different. It's quite different. You've also started writing these these novellas as well, These these which I think are fascinating. As, as you know, that uh, I'm particularly interested in the Nameless series that you have. And uh, talk a little bit about Nameless and, and, and that character, which I find just so fascinating. That was uh, Amazon Original Stories, which is another little operation they had, publishing shorter work. And they came to me, I had done one novella for them. They came and said, would you do a series of novellas? And they said, we want to give these away to prime members. And my first thought was, uh, give them away. I, I don't know about that. But they ended up, no, we'll pay you what you normally get at a rate, but we're, we're going to give them away. Uh, and there was a kind of fascinating, freeing quality about that. 
So I came up with this idea of the character uh, who is, uh, amnesia is not an uncommon gimmick in publishing, but it's always something that somebody else did to the character that caused this amnesia, uh, some sort of brainwashing, or uh, it could be an emotional shock, but it's something that was done to them. And the idea first came to me, what if this character who is trying to put people's lives right when he doesn't even know who he is, uh, what if that character is not suffering amnesia because of something that somebody else did think, but it's something that he can't live with that he basically did to himself. And that's where the idea to the story for this series came from. And I have to tell you, I had enormous fun writing those 12 novellas. Uh, we never thought there would be more than six, but they were so popular that they came back and said, would you write six more? Yeah. I said, I had so much fun writing. Why would I? Is it hard to work on multiple projects at the same time? Is it I hard? Can't. <laughs> when I was writing The Nameless, I was not writing a novel at the same time. I'm, uh, I've got a very narrow focus, so I have to stay with one story. There have been a couple of occasions when I got somewhere in a book and said, I don't know if I'm taking, the, if this is going in the right direction, or in fact, where is it going? And then I've put it aside and written something else and gone back to it. But I've never been able to do two things at once. I need that total concentration. Dean Kuntz, I can't thank you enough for being on The Literary Life. This has been such a great visit with you, and I hope we get a chance to do it again. Um, I know that you don't travel much, but um, I would love to be able to show you a little bit about a little of John D. McDonald's world, if you ever did make it to Miami anytime. I would enjoy that. Um, and we can interview anytime. Yeah. I often say you're, to my wife, she says, how do you go? And I say, well, you know, you're only as good as the interviewer. Yeah. So I enjoy this as well. Oh, uh, well, that's kind of you.